What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we'd like to thank everyone who's with us today on this incredible episode. We've got so much to talk about. Oh my goodness. But before we dive in, we want to say that this episode is sponsored by none other than the Bestseller Academy, which is something that we launched back in September. And it has been an absolutely incredible ride so far, hasn't it, Mr. Stay? It's been a smash hit. I've loved every minute. I love the coaching sessions. Uh, you know, the, the the it's a growing community and we're getting to know everyone really well, getting to know what their books are about, what their hopes are, their careers, their dreams, everything. It's, it's, uh, it's terrific. I'm loving every minute. It's absolutely incredible. And we have some very exciting news to share with you. Um, we are actually opening the doors again to the Bestseller Academy for new applicants for 2021, January 2021. So if you are thinking about making 2021 your year when you're going to either start, restart, dust off, and most importantly, finish that book that you want to create, a book that you believe could be the best book you've ever written, even if it's your first or your 10th book, we want you to consider applying to the Academy. And it's one of the things that's really blown me away, Mark, actually, is, I mean, apart from the feedback we're getting, there, there are many, many courses on the Academy. There's currently about 25 courses on all kinds of things, from book hooks to act one, to structure, to points of view, to the inner game writing, uh, writing habits, all kinds of different areas, which are so important. But one of the things I've been really blown away, Mark, is the coaching sessions have been such a huge success, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. There's always such a great turnout. They send questions in advance. I spent ages prepping for it because I, you know, I want to get it right. And it's really good fun. And we always have a really, they come to the front of the class on Zoom. We have a little chat. Uh, it's all very up close and personal, you know, and um, yeah, it's, they're really, I've done three so far, one just the other night. And um, yeah, I really look forward to them now. The highlight of my month. It's brilliant, isn't it? So we do we do two coaching sessions a month for everyone that's in the academy. One on craft, and one on coaching. Like we call it, the writer's life. It's all of those things that no one ever talks about about how hard writing can be, from the kind of emotional and mental perspective. You know, procrastination, um, not believing in yourself. But I I attended your. Uh, craft coaching just this Monday and I came out feeling so inspired it's really funny it's like and there were so many there's so many notes on the on the forum about about how it had affected people and and there's one that just jumped out for me Barb Barb one of our academates as we call them um, said the coaching sessions themselves are well worth the price of admission the courses are a great added extra bonus thanks to two marks so I think I think 
this is the thing which everyone needs. You know, if you go on a course or you do like a one-off online course, you go on a writing conference a weekend, it's great. But what we're trying to create in the academy is this consistency of inspiring you throughout the whole year and also having that support and community and also deepening your learning. So if you're interested in becoming an academy, it's a very simple process. All you need to do is go to the academy website and enter your email address and then we'll send you more information. And to do that, you simply go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. That's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com enter your email address and you'll find out more. There is an early bird application deadline of the end of November and then the actual main doors shut for applications at the on New Year's Eve this year. So have a think about that, folks. And uh, if you've got any questions, come to the website and ping them over to us as well. So, Mr. Stay, There'll be a link in the show notes will to be. that as well. Absolutely. So yeah, easy to find. Talking to about find. feedback from our wonderful listeners, we had quite the email this week, didn't we? Yeah, well, we normally, you know, leave social media or whatever to the end. But uh, I wanted to I wanted to step up front with this one because this is just um, our, our previous guest was the wonderful Sally Gardner. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, go back. It's a hugely entertaining interview with Sally. She was so much fun. Uh, and then I got this email from Hayley Coulter. And um, she said, you know, that episode really moved me to the point that I had to take a quiet moment before I entered work and hold back the tears. As a severely dyslexic person who couldn't read until I was 12, 14 and believed I wasn't allowed to write, that if my readers knew I was dyslexic, they wouldn't read my book. Theatre was my game changer. It was where I found my voice, learned to read scripts and write them, but most of all, discover the gift it gave me by how my brain worked in the most vivid, visual way. It made me fight hard at school so I could go to uni and study theatre design with set and costume. But after my degree, I chose to teach other students with learning disabilities, including dyslexia, the gift of theatre. And yet I didn't allow myself to write until one day I couldn't stop myself. I write like Sally does. Now, I'm going to add, just say here, Sally Gardner, very, very dyslexic. And she spoke about that in a very honest way on, on the podcast. And uh, So Hayley continues, she said, I have to see it to write it. In my mind, it becomes a play a film where the characters become real and I describe every detail by zooming in on the scene and allow the characters to speak. If I can't see it, I can't write it. But I've never heard another writer describe the same process. I think what moved me to tears was for the first time, it gave me hope, especially on the eve of self-publishing my book. I think one of the reasons I held back from the traditional route was that if they found out I'm dyslexic, so to hear Sally, Sally openly discuss so many similarities as myself has honestly given me hope that maybe I can do this and be as successful as a writer. So thank you again for sharing that episode and timing it so well, like we did on purpose. <laughs> yeah. I needed it. I needed it more than you could possibly know. But now I'm going to be late for work where I teach prisoners. Thank you, Haley. I mean, how wonderful is that? How just one of the best emails ever. I mean, firstly, I just want to say thank you to Haley for for writing that to us because I really believe that there are a lot of people out there who are struggling in silence around writing and dyslexia, people who've got dreams of wanting to write a book. I think there's a lot of people that maybe have never even thought of trying to write a book because they just believe that it's not possible. And I want to thank Hayley as well as Sally for being so open about 
about their challenges mm. because as we've always said on this show, it's people like you that inspire other people and can change people's lives just by sharing the journey that you've gone through. And I, I honestly, I stand in awe of people like this, Mark, because I cannot imagine. I mean, let's be honest. We'll find out later on in the interview just how hard writing is. Right. right? But ultimately, you know, to be then attempting to write a book with, with dyslexia or other, other things that can be challenging for you. It, it, I just, I just, I mean, the awe of people that can do it. So I really hope that um, Haley's email, if you, if you suffer from dyslexia, if you've struggled with it, if you've never, if you write or you want to write, I want you to be inspired by what they've, what they've shared with us, because maybe it could be the turning point for you as it has been for Haley. And I want to just say congratulations to Haley on the, on the eve of publishing her book. What an incredible achievement. Yeah, I, I, a couple of things to, uh, there. Well, first of all, her book, uh, she writes under the name H.D. Coulter. And by the time this episode goes out, it should be uh, live and available to buy, to buy. And the book is called Rope Walk. It's got a gorgeous cover, really, really gorgeous cover. You've got to see this. Rope Walk with the subtitle Rebellion, Love, Survival. So, yeah, do check that out. Now, I want to just um, disavow Haley of, of one thing. She, she says here, you know, uh, she, she thought that because she's dyslexic, publishers wouldn't take her on. Nothing could be further from, from the truth. And I, funnily enough, our guest today is none other than Rowan Coleman, a million-selling, multi-million-selling, best-selling, award-winning author. She's been on the show before. She's returning today. I, I messaged her when I got Haley's. Uh, I, I've also forwarded this. We got Haley's permission to read this out on the podcast, and I've sent it to Sally, and I'd be lovely to hear back from Sally on this. But I got in touch with Rowan. I said, Rowan, you're, you're dyslexic, aren't you? And she said, oh, yes, that's me. Uh, about two million words published, and most of them in the right order. Uh, <laughs> uh, and she says, I actually think that dyslexia is a superpower for authors, and publishers care about story and idea, not punctuation. Few. And Rowan also said... Point Haley my way. If I can give her some pointers, I will. So, wow. you know, thank you for that, Rowan. And uh, and it's absolutely true. I know lots of authors who have gradations of, of dyslexia because it's not a binary thing. It's not one thing or the other. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I hope you take further inspiration from that, Haley, and wishing you all the best with Rope Walk. Absolutely. And if you have any stories as well around dyslexia, if, if Sally's – uh, or even Haley's comments have opened up your world, please, please email us and let us know. We'd love to either privately or publicly share what you've you've told us because these are the moments that change people's lives. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's many of you out there that have been struggling for many, many years. So, wow, what an incredible episode. And what a, what a brilliant tie-in to the beginning of our, this, this week's interview, which is, which is a returning, as you say, of Rowan Coleman, who has been quite an incredible inspiration for many people since the first time she came on, but now she's doing something even more exciting. Tell us about her journey, Mark. This is great. Well, this is Rowan Coleman, uh, like I say, award-winning, multi-million best-selling author of books like The Memory Book, We're All Made of Stars, Summer of Impossible Things, The Girl at the Window. Well, she's now writing uh, the Bronte Mysteries under the, the pseudonym Bella Ellis. And so we have a really fun conversation. We talk about ideas. We talk about why mysteries require so much more plot. We talk about writing around real history, real characters, real events, and why it's so important to think of the reader. This is so much fun. Absolutely. It's a hoot. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Mark interviewing Rowan Coleman. Rowan, welcome back to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm 
I'm plagued by technical issues. So uh, hopefully this will be fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. We'll, we'll, we'll work our way through it. Now, look, I, I I was supposed to be interviewing someone called Bella Ellis, and then it turns out it's you. So so what gives? Who Who is Bella Ellis? Where did she come from? Bella Ellis is my not-so-top-secret identity, um, and she is the uh, – it's the pen name for my series of books, uh, Victorian detective novels, the Bronte Mysteries, which imagine that before they were renowned authors, the Bronte sisters were amateur sleuths. And I, I'm writing those under the name Bella Ellis. This is such a brilliant idea. Such a, such a brilliant idea. Where did where did that come from? Is is it something you'd always wanted to do? Or is it one of those things where you have a conversation with an agent or a publisher? How, how did it come about? It came um, so beautifully, like a bolt from the blue. <laughs> so rarely <laughs> rarely happens in this in this world but I was in the middle of writing my last Rowan novel The Girl at the Window and that novel has a central mystery to it and I thought it would be fun if the Bronte sisters because Girl at Window is set in Pondon Hall just outside of Haworth and it's uh, the house where Wuthering Heights uh, was in, was inspired by a lot of Wuthering Heights was inspired by, and I thought it would be fun to have the Bronte sisters making a cameo appearance in 1850s, trying to solve the same mystery that my contemporary heroine was solving. But as soon as I had the idea, I thought, wait a minute, Bronte <laughs> solving mysteries—that's the best idea I've ever had. <laughs> Immediately, uh, well, what I did is I, because I hadn't finished that book, so I stuck a pin in it and hoped really hard that nobody else would have the idea between me having it and having time to write the books. And luckily, that was okay. Nobody else had the idea. I can't believe no one else has had the idea, to be honest, because it's such a good one. (laughs) That is, that must must be quite squeaky bum time, actually, because when you have a great high concept idea like that, you do think, and it is one of those, why didn't anyone else think of this before? It's, um, did you immediately start making notes? Did you immediately start compiling? What's your process for something like this? Do you, do you, are you someone who just leaps in chapter one, starts writing, or, or are you a bit of a planner? Well, these books are very different to the books that I've written before. And I'm not saying that my Rowan Coleman books don't have plot. They have lots of plot, but these books require twice as much plot. And because it's a mystery, you know, there's got to be a lot of clues and red herrings and twists and turns and peril a little bit of supernatural flavour. So actually, for these books, I start out with what's happening in the lives of the Bronte sisters at that particular moment. So they're they're all set within the biographical framework of the Bronte family's life. And everything that happens to them in the books happened to them in reality. And then in amongst those facts, I weave the the story and the fiction. So I start with, usually I'm looking for a period of time where they're all at home and we don't have anything big happening on record. So, you know, it's not like the day that Jane, uh, that Jane Eyre was published or something like that. It's like periods of time that actually aren't on record, but we know that they are, they're all together. So I use those periods of time. And then I put the story around that. Once I found this, the time frame. I make a note of the biographical things that are happening, and then I start to plot. 
because it's quite a complicated process. That's um, that's great though, because it kind of gives you a framework, doesn't it? You find maybe a week where they're doing nothing. They might be near to a yeah. certain location, and that it's yeah. it's almost like improv where you go, okay, I've got a, a, a mysterious house here. I've got the Yorkshire Moors here. I've got a week in October. Go, you know. So, but as you said, mystery fiction is quite plotty, isn't it? Uh, is it the first time you've ever had to had to do anything like that? And what what were the big sort of learning curves for you? I think. I had a quite a good training ground with my novels, um, The Summer of Impossible Things and Girl at the Window, because they are centrally, they have a central mystery to be solved. And and so they're quite plotty and twisty and turny, and that was good training. And I'm a big reader. I love reading mysteries. Uh, I love crime fiction. I love supernatural fiction. Um, I love Bronte fiction, which is pretty much as twisty and as turny as it gets. So... It was really, for me, plotting a satisfying mystery is about layering. So I sort of, I'm not a natural plotter. If it was up to me, everybody in my books would just have a nice cup of tea, get on really well, you know, decide to fall in love the end. But but what with this plot thing being so important, I just basically, I start with a plot and I do plot the whole thing before I begin. So I, so I start with a plot that's fairly basic and then I just sort of try and tangle it up and tangle it up and tangle it up and then I write the first draft and then tangle it up a bit more and then do that probably another three or four times until I've got where I want to be. Yeah. <laughs> tangle it up. Tangle it up. That, that's it. Post-it notes. Excellent, excellent. But basically you're, you're – it's that thing of just making your life more and more difficult for your 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 characters. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then trying to find that place where you you can suddenly you get a, a realization. That's always for me the best part of plotting is that during the writing you'll see. Well, wait a minute. If they do this here, then that thing that happened there can actually mean this or this, and then you can sort of go back and tie it in and loop it round and make a lovely tapestry. <laughs> well, that's a, that is that's a, tapestry is a great thing because you do start getting these threads that start coming together, aren't they? There are things that uh, just through putting words on the page, you start to make these connections, and when you start making the connections, you've after, after banging your head against the keyboard for a while, you start getting something that looks like a plot, don't you? Exactly that, and I love my favourite bit is sort of towards the end where you have a real big picture of what's happening, and then you're able to just pick up threads from later in the book and weave them in at the beginning of the book so that they're so that what I really hope is that my readers get to a moment like have light bulb moments where they think oh that's what that was about and that's that to me is um is kind of the goal yeah if I can do that if I can pull it off but it is well hard (laughs) it is it is well hard yeah that's that's (laughs) That could always be the shout line for our podcast. Writing is well hard. Emily. She says that this business of putting one word in front of another to create a novel is much more laborious than one would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's well hard, said Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> What I like there, though, is you're thinking about the readers or you're thinking about the reaction that you want to elicit from the reader and that light bulb moment, that little moment of joy that readers get when it all clicks into place. That's important, isn't it? For me, that's really central. It's always been central to to why I write books. I write them for entertainment purposes, 
predominantly that's the main reason why I write them. I want people to um, go on an adventure and get swept up in a story and feel and experience things that they wouldn't otherwise feel and experience in their kitchen in, I don't know, wherever they are. <laughs> in the world. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That is that is very noble. I love that. I've got a few listener questions. In fact, the first two are kind of similar. So we've got one from Laura Shepherd, who has a question about voice, which is something that people talk about a lot. Do you feel that your voice is always distinctly yours, no matter whether you're writing historical or contemporary fiction? Or do you feel that your voice moulds to fit the genre and donna says how easy do you find it writing with with two voices now we've already heard you say it's well hard and then you've quoted um one of the brontes you know so you're using two voices very well there do you have to put a bronte hat on when you when you write these books yes (laughs) yes i do so my rowan books i think are, are very much my rowan voice my natural authorial voice and and that's fairly easy to, to get into. And even I think when I was writing something like the memory book, which was the first person story of a of a woman with early onset Alzheimer's, even then I think it was my own voice was very strong. For the Bronte mysteries, my Bella voice, let's call it, is actually three voices. So it's it's written in the third person, but from the point of view of Charlotte, Emily, and Anne. And so I'm having to sort of assume the character of each of them, the fictional character that I've created for them, which is based on the real characteristics that we know about them. And I have to put that voice on every alternate three chapters. It's roughly they have a chapter each in turn. To be fair, we don't want them to fight. Um, <laughs> so that is the mindset that I have to get into. And also, I want the books to be very accessible. Um, So I'm currently reading Jane Eyre on my Instagram live. I'm on chapter two. And I love Jane Eyre. I've read it gazillions, gazillions gazillions of times. But what I've discovered reading it out loud is is that it is actually a difficult read. There are lots of really long words in it. So I want to capture the essence of of a Bronte novel, the feel of a Bronte novel, without it being too... um, impenetrable does that make sense yeah absolutely. it's an easy read with a bronte feel to it so it's quite a different hat in fact it's a bonnet <laughs> <laughs> of course it is of course it is now bronte fans and i know you're one yourself you know they're, they're going to be very passionate about this and you spoke earlier about thinking about the reader on the one hand, you don't want to disappoint them. You, you don't want to, you know, do anything egregious with these beloved writers and now characters. But also, you want to get some, you want to, you know, get some delight out of the reader as well. How much are you thinking of the reader while you're writing? Is it can because I imagine it can be almost crippling thinking, oh god, what am I get this wrong? Uh, I mean, that really did worrying about upsetting Bronte fans did really nearly make me not do it um, <laughs> because I am a Bronte fan. Yeah. I have been since I was about 10 and I am a passionate lover of their work, their lives. Um, you can see behind me and all around me mm. are my collection of about a thousand Bronte books. So <laughs> I am a complete nut. So the way I, pro- I approached it was to make sure that I treat the characters, treat, treat these real women with um, the utmost love and fondness and respect. So I would never make them do anything that I don't think that they would do in, you know, 
themselves. There's no kind of wild sex parties or um, <laughs> or um, imaginary affairs or, you know, you don't see them suddenly karate chopping someone. <laughs> so I, I stay very much true to, to as what we know of them biographically. I always try and keep biographical details correct. Sometimes I'll move something for the sake of story. But if I do that, I put it in an author's notes. Everybody knows that everybody knows all the time what's happening, what's real and what's not real. And then I have to just let myself imagine them uh, into fictional characters. And it's quite easy to do with Charlotte, for example, because we have lots and lots of letters that Charlotte wrote to her friends, Ellen, Ellen Nussie. So her voice is very easily obtainable and quite easy to to put up to kind of assume I guess um and she was you know she was funny she was funny and and very heartfelt and very always falling in love oh and incredibly clever and very driven so that was quite an easy one to do um Emily we know much less about her she was she was much less of a writer a letter writer and everybody has a different opinion about Emily and who she is and what she was. So I've just really made her the Emily that I love, which is a sort of bold, courageous, blunt, non-conformist <laughs> who loves dogs. <laughs> <laughs> who loves dogs and doesn't really understand other people's interests. She doesn't really understand why, she, why Charlotte's, you know, in love with some bloke, some married bloke. She's like, well, whatever, I'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> and and then repeat repeat for Anne, uh, who is is kind of going through something of a resurgence at the moment. It was her bicentenary year this year, two hundred years since she was born, and we were supposed to have all these lovely celebrations about Anne and her work, but unfortunately, obviously, pandemic interrupted that. But she's Anne's a fascinating character, um, definitely rebellious in her own way um very passionate for equality a mod if and if today she would be protesting outside you know the white house that's the kind of person Anne was so um yeah and then Branwell's a drunk so. <laughs> <laughs> no not that i'm not that blunt he's a he's an important character actually Okay. Well, uh, Angela uh, Angela Nurse has a question. She says, with historical fiction, how important is it that you are factually correct with every detail? And do you have a rule for what you don't change where it's okay to bend reality to fit into the story? So, you know, you are dealing with real people here and that as much as we know or little or as much as we know about these people, you do have to fill the gaps in yourself, don't you? So um, how much liberty did you feel that you're able to take with, with this? So I don't, don't think I take a massive, I don't take a lot of liberty with things that happened in their lives. So there is a certain framework around the books that we talked about earlier. So we know that Charlotte is getting over an unrequited passion for her teacher. We know that Branwell's just been fired from Thorpe Green for having an affair with his boss's missus. Um, we know that Anne had to resign from her job at Fort Green because her brother had an affair with his boss's missus um, and Emily was already at home uh, where she liked to be. So those are the, the beginnings of the of the series. During that time, they get a book of poetry published. Um, they begin work on their novels. 
Charlotte's first novel is rejected and she writes Jane Eyre, which, by the way, I think is the number one top example of resilience to all authors everywhere. Like her two sisters are like, we've got books published. And Charlotte's like, right, I'm going to write Jane Eyre. (laughs) 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 What a woman. Um, Anyway, I digress. So those those facts I I would never never tamper with. They are set in stone. So that also... Part of the great fun of the series is that I get to to reverse engineer their novels and to sort of look at ways things that might have inspired their novels and events in their lives even actually. So go deep dive into Jane Eyre, deep dive into Wuthering Heights, um, which we know they're on record. There are places, locations, and stories that might have been part of the inspirations for their novels. But also, there's loads of room for fictional inspirations as well. So those that's kind of where I weave the stories in and out. I introduce mostly fictional characters. There's a character in The Diabolical Bones called Zerubbabel Baraklof, who, who was a real person, a clockmaker from Haworth. And I had to include him because he's literally got the best name in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I did, I did as much research into him as I could. Um, so there, there are real names. But then, you know, like around that we've, fictional i never have a real historical person being a baddie i'd never make a real mm. that's a slight spoiler actually but i'd never make a real <laughs> historical person um you know be a murderer or a kidnapper so all of the all of the baddies what the baddies are sometimes based on an amalgam of real people but they're not real people and you must find little surprises while you're researching do, do they inspire Plot points and characters and moments in in the books. Oh yes, so much, so much. Um, I'm trying to think with so in Diabolical Bones, the sort of the house where the where the mystery is, where the bones are found, is Topwithin's Hall. Um, Topwithin's Hall is a, is an amalgamation of Pondon Hall and Topwithin's the farm, which. Emily herself put together to make Wuthering Heights. She took the building of, of Pundon Hall, the interior of Pundon Hall, put it together with the location of Topwithin's Farm and made Wuthering Heights. I've made it Topwithin's Hall. And that's where they are investigating this mystery. And for the third book, which will be called uh, The Rise of the Red Monarch, I have found a tiny little biographical detail that nobody's really written about before it's a it's it, and it's Bronte adjacent but it is so fascinating as soon as I found it a whole plot just went whoosh out of there Brilliant. and I was able to use that idea to tie up some of the mysteries that we ha- still have about the Brontes and, and things that they felt and thought and did that we uh, we often wonder why. And, and I've kind of just filled that in with story as well. So from a writer's point of view, it's just basically the best fun in the world, to be honest. <laughs> it's just, I just really love it. And I'm sorry. I feel like it should be hard work, but I, I just really love it. <laughs> well, let's go from something that is a bit more hard work. Now, you mentioned Anne's celebrations being curtailed by COVID and lockdown. You're launching a book in lockdown. What yes. challenges has that presented for you? you? You say you're on Instagram every day reading from uh, from, yes. from Jane Eyre. So uh, what, what else have you been doing? 
so my book, The Diabolical Bones, came out on uh, the day that lockdown happened mm. um, last week. And it's been actually, in a way, you know, it's pluses and minuses. It's minus because bookshops are closed. <laughs> That's a big minus. But most <laughs> of them are online. Pluses are that you can do these, these kind of online events. And whereas, so I'm, for tomorrow, I'm doing an event with Exeter Library. And whereas ordinarily, it would take, you know, I'd go to Exeter and people from Exeter would come. And now everybody can come from mm. all over the world. So, you know, there's, that's, that's a plus. People are being very innovative in the events that they're doing. Um, I'm doing a thing called Reading Party on the 12th, which is you get to buy a book and also read along at this event. It's a very intimate event, with few people where you're reading the book together and talking about the book with the author. And then I'm really just putting quite a lot of work into my social media at the moment, which is um, interesting, actually. <laughs> interesting to me to see what what actually does get traction and what gets results and what doesn't. And I'm putting a lot of work into Instagram, which I really enjoy because I love pictures, pretty things, and books. And I love the Bookstagram community on Instagram. And I joined TikTok, Ooh. which uh, – Water has reliably informed me I am far too old for. But, you know. <laughs> oh no, surely not. Well, t- yeah, TikTok. I, I, I've got to the point where I look at TikTok and I'm, I'm like, oh, I can't be bothered. But Instagram, I, I do, I do love Instagram. Instagram just seems to be a much nicer space, doesn't it? A much more positive space. Donna Gallant does have a PS follow-up question. How do you always look? So stylish. Oh, no, wait. I think that's for me. Well, uh, Donna, it's quite simple. Um, I, I chose a look that worked for me in 1994 and I've stuck with it. But, um, yes, Ro- Rowan, how do you look so stylish? That's so sweet to say that. I never feel like I look stylish at all. Um, my mum always referred to me as like a sack tied up in the middle. And that's kind of- <laughs> basic sort of style uh, <laughs> look is from that moment on. Um, I did learn that Instagram does like you to look presentable. Mm. Uh, and and that's much less important to me than it is, I think, to my Instagram followers. They much prefer me when I've got mascara and lipstick on. So I put some makeup on every day and I may or may not have purchased um, a lot of very nice tops. <laughs> um, <laughs> the internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> if anyone asks, I have not done that. Okay, fair. Well, look, let, <laughs> stay, staying on the thing theme of stylish things, the diabolical bones. I saw you on Instagram the other day talking about the hardcover edition. It's gorgeous, isn't it? It really oh. is gorgeous, and you've got a map. You, you've got. I've got map envy. <laughs> It's an audio podcast, but you can show me. Yes. I have a map that I, so I'm really lucky with Hodder because um, they are very kind to me about, about, um, oh God, I don't know, about six months ago, I said, look, I've drawn a map. Lovely if it went in the front of the book, and I and I could just imagine them all at the other end of the email going, uh, <laughs> <laughs> "How do we break it to her that that's not going in a book?" <laughs> and, um, but which you know, 
nine out of 10 times is what would have happened. But bless them, they took my map and they gave it to um, their brilliant designer, William Speed, who then created a beautiful map, properly drawn by an our actual illustrator. And, um, and they've made this beautiful, beautiful book. And it's got a beautiful dust jacket. Under the dust jacket, it's all gold gold leaf embossed and a gorgeous map and it's just a lovely thing to have so i would say you know if you're looking out for for some kind of gift this is ideal for (laughs) anyone really nicely done anyone nicely done (laughs) very good well uh, we'll wrap it up there now we've gone to the sales pitch (laughs) yes book one is the vanished bride book two is the diabolical bones they're both available now rise of the red monarch I, i'm guessing be next year sometime so uh yeah. and they 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 all look gorgeous on the shelf so uh rowan thank you so much for talking to us today best of luck with the diabolical bones and hope to speak to you again soon and thank you very much i'd love to come back thank you mark bye bye she is so much fun, isn't she? Absolutely oh, she's, brilliant. She's a great love. Really, you it, two well, were laughing so hard. I was like, I was wondering if you were gasping for air at one point, Mark. It was brilliant. No, she's she's a great laugh. Really, really good laugh. And uh, it's well hard has got to be <laughs> a uh, potential t-shirt quote. You know, we got to get those. I know we've the talked about that. We we've got we, the best yeah. experiment interviews. The t-shirt collection. Well, one day. <laughs> When Mark and I get a chance, because we've had so many requests, haven't we? But that one, writing is well odd. What I want to know is, is it odd as in apostrophe A-R-D? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so true. Do you know, I I kind of, we we joke, but, but I would say the overriding thing that I've learned from this podcast is writing is hard. Writing is a labour of love and... I've never heard it put so beautifully and succinctly as Rowan <laughs> said earlier. Yeah. Do you know one of the other things that's jumped out for me, Mark, in the interview was this idea of tapestry and plot threads. Mm. I never really thought of it like tapestry before, but I love that imagery that came up when you were talking about that because there's yeah. like so many loose ends as well. Like, you know, sometimes the tapestry we look at is like this shaggy old carpet. <laughs> like, yeah. Looks like it's had better days, but that, yeah, that's really up, interesting. You, if you, pull at the wrong thread it all falls apart <laughs> absolutely yeah 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 but a beautiful but yeah. tapestry that's the thing to behold isn't it and i love this idea of tangle it up tangle it up you know those, those are your plot complications those are the barriers you put in front of your protagonist tangle it up so yeah it's, it's great there's some really 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 fun chat one of the other things as well that was really interesting that rowan said was about how she is enjoying this process because through the plotting of of things because there are kind of limitations to what she can do. She's looking at a certain point in time. She's got it. She's giving herself a bit of extra license to, to play with, but because she's writing it around the Bronte sisters and there's a lot of history connected there in some ways it kind of restricts her, but that must make it more focused and easier to, to dive straight in. Yeah. I did something vaguely similar. I wrote a screenplay called the black spitfire where we had Churchill and we tried to find a week where Churchill wasn't doing anything in the Second World War, you know, where there was no, uh, no, you know, record that you could find with a quick Google, you know, where he was and what he was doing. And um, we we started from there and worked out from what he could do from that. And it's quite good fun, actually. It's, a, it's an interesting exercise. You know, you take um, there's a, there's a, there was a TV series called The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Oh, I remember uh, which, that. Yeah, yeah, which which every week had a real historical figure in it. 
And, you know, there was always a jumping off point. He'd be in Prague, he'd be here or whatever. And he'd bump into some great historical figure just on their day off or whatever and have an adventure with them. And it all tied in around the history. It would lead to some great historical moment. Uh, Quantum Leap used to do that really well, too. Mm. You know, he, he'd be in Dallas on the day JFK was shot or something like that. <laughs> so that is... Those those kind of you know skipping around history you can have so much fun with oh, those it's um, brilliant but you do have to do your research you do have to know your stuff well that's the thing and that was the other thing that really jumped out for me was that Rowan is obviously like mega Bronte sisters fan you can just tell she just oozes passion when she talks about them and it reminded me and it's something we need to be reminded of and a lot of authors have reminded of this over the years is that you've got to have fun. And you've got to really love what you're doing as the very foundation of anything you write. The minute it becomes a drag, it's because you've not picked something that you're really super passionate about. Do what you love was, you know, that's the kind of thing we've always said, but it's come out so strongly with Rowan, hasn't it? Well, I think that's why she came up with this idea. You know, it was it was almost like the idea is whizzing through the universe and it's looking for a super fan and it popped into her head. And this, and I know she was concerned that she'd had a great idea and why hadn't anyone else thought of it? And I understand that that concern that someone else might come along and pitch you, but of course she is... Now, what you probably didn't see, uh, you know, when I spoke to her on... on, on um, we use Squadcast to record this and it's video and I could see her bookshelves behind her and she's got all these Bronte sisters books, you know, all these different editions, collector's editions, what have you, just incredible. So she really does know her stuff. So if anyone was going to think of this idea, it was going to be her. And not only that, she is the right person to put it into action, to bring it to life. Because I worry that authors get too hung up on ideas. You know, they think, oh, I've had this original idea. I don't want to share it with anyone because they'll steal it and they'll run off and they'll do something with it. You hear this a lot in screenwriting where people go, well, I've written this story and it's it's unique and no one else has come up with this idea. So I guarantee someone else has definitely. There's 7 billion people on the planet, all right? About a million of them have probably come up with the same idea. But only you can express it in your individual way. You have that unique expression. And if like Rowan, you're a super fan, you are already leagues ahead of everyone else in this. So, you know, don't get too hung up about, someone going to steal my idea? Because they can't steal you. They can't steal no. your unique expression of that idea. Beautifully put. You know, it's, so, it's such a big point because one of the things I often find when I'm coaching is that's one of the first questions that comes up is about, you know, they, well, even now I still get questions about, do I need to put my idea in a jiffy bag and take it to the post yeah, office and get oh it post dated? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, because, yeah. and, and, and it, I remember that is definitely a, um, a, a new, a new writer or a new musician in the case of music. That's always like when you first start it, you're petrified that someone is going to steal it. And actually when you look at, I was having this conversation with someone just the other day about, when you, for example, with nonfiction, when you when you buy a book about you know making the most of your life or living your dreams, that there are millions of books, millions of variations on that books. But what you often end up doing is you go to the author that you most connect with, and when you love that author and you get into that author, you buy anything that they write. It doesn't even matter if they're writing about something that's irrelevant to your life. You love the author, and so people need to have more confidence in who they are as an author. Yep. And that they, their words are their words. And even if, I mean, it'd be a really interesting experiment in the, in the, in the kind of nature of what we do to get 10, to give, to give 10 different writers. Maybe we should do this as a short story. This would be great, right? Here we go. 
get, get 10 of our academates in the bestseller academy to, and we'll give, we'll write the blurb of a story. So it's the blur, like back of the book blurb. And we'll say, right, you've got 1000 words. Each of you write this story. We've given the character names, the, 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 pl- the main plot, and then get them all to write 10 stories and then just read them and just see how completely different they'll be. I don't need any more work. <laughs> <laughs> but it's maybe a great can, idea. Maybe you, you can, can self-organise. <laughs> but, 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 but do you know what I mean? It's like if you... Yeah. Yeah. If if well, uh, if you gave them everything just to prove this point to everyone once and for all and, and put it there's in the a water, reason there's a reason when you came back from your summer holidays at school your teacher would give you that thing write what you did on your holidays okay you're all given the same brief yeah. basically and you all express yourselves in your own different ways you know and it's not just about oh I went uh, to a beach holiday I went to Butlins or whatever it's about expression what they're really looking for there is is the, in fact they're probably psychologically screening you <laughs> something just occurred to me <laughs> yeah. yeah little Timmy was in his bunker all summer that can't be right um, <laughs> but yeah you know the, you, you're given that that same brief so yeah it is you're absolutely right it would be a fascinating exercise if we said to people right the three little pigs Okay, write your version of the three little pigs. I know my version would probably be a bloodbath. You know, well, that's right. <laughs> and on the other end, there might be something absolutely hilarious and funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And somebody else might write it for kids. So yeah, yeah. So if anyone's listening and they've been hanging, and this is the thing, if you've been hanging on to your ideas, sitting on your, you know, your light under the bushel for four or five years, and and the reason why you've not written that book or or published it is because you don't want anyone else to to have the idea. You've got to stop. I'm I'm telling you right now, you've got to stop. You've got to get beyond that point of being worried. Because the other thing is, and this is something that I've learned through coaching people to live their biggest dreams, is that it's only when you start sharing your highest aspirations with other people that they can show up to help you. If no yes. one knows, like if you want, let's be honest, we're, one of the things we're coaching people on is about building a beta reader team really early on, even before you've started writing your book in the academy. We're, we're, we're building a course on that very one topic. And the reason being is that, you know, you should be sharing your idea with people even before you started writing it, because they might, there might be one thing that they give you as, as your audience, as the people you're writing the book for ultimately, that could pivot and make you write the bestseller rather than yeah. the, the bargain yeah. basement. You you can steal from them, and, <laughs> exactly. And 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 the thing about people worrying about producers stealing your ideas. Trust me, producers are lovely, lovely people. But if they were creative, they would be writing themselves. You know, so they, they they are desperate for ideas. They're desperate to yeah. hear your ideas. You know, they they you know don't don't sit on it. It's um the yeah, the egg won't hatch that way. You know, producers <laughs> have got a reputation to uphold as well. I mean, the last oh, thing yeah. a producer wants to do is be be you know told oh you've stolen my idea because that could be the you know absolutely disastrous for them as well so i think we all just need to be a bit more trustworthy and have faith in in humanity right now (laughs) i mean on every level but definitely within ideas and writing books because again remember that the more people you share it with up front the more it will help shape your story and you're not writing this book ultimately for you you're writing it for everyone else so speak to your audience talk to them about it one one idea i was chatting with kate harrison the other day actually on email about this very one thing Mm. and she she said share it with your friends and look at their reaction just your ideas nothing else share it with your friends and if they've glazed over then maybe mm. it's not the best idea. If, if everyone glazes over, then you might want to rethink it. But if everyone's getting really excited about it, genuinely, 
then you might be onto something. And it's a really great way of sifting through all the different things you've got. But we digress. I, I, I noticed as well that Rowan mentioned that double T word that hasn't ever come up in this podcast. I think it's the first time it's been mentioned, has it, Mark? TikTok? TikTok. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I don't know what it is. I'm too old. You know, I, it's, uh, well, that's, it's for the you know, youth. That's the it? perception, though. That's the perception. <laughs> but it's it's really interesting. It's maturing. And as a result, the audience is also maturing. And there is this... I'm, I'm going to put it out there because I think that there are opportunities for authors right now, as there are for many different... With everything, anything that's kind of new, then the algorithms are still fresh and lovely and working in your favour. TikTok could be actually a very interesting opportunity for authors. So I'm putting it out there. Anyone who's using TikTok as an author, tell us. What do you do? How do you use it? What do you use it for? Is it successful for you? Um is it a complete disaster? Have you not tried it because you think you're, you know, too old or too young even? Um, has anyone actually worked out? You want to get on one of those lists, don't you? Do you remember when Twitter was new and every newspaper had, here are the 30 people on Twitter you must follow. And there's a reason why Stephen Fry has, you know, whatever million followers, because he was at the top of all those yep. lists, you know. Absolutely. And once they get that insurmountable lead, no one else will ever get there. So, you know, if you are getting in at the ground level or something like that, then, you know, yeah, it makes yourself stand there's... out. There's something, there's a, in entrepreneurship, there's a word that we talk about called first mover advantage. And that's what it is. And right now, right now, what's happening in the music world is all the musicians are going, oh my gosh, this is why. In fact, um, I've been working on a campaign recently for an artist who's seen that her decline in Instagram is exactly the same as her increasing TikTok. So apparently there's a lot of Instagram oh. that's being sucked away and TikTok is is where it's happening. So I think we're on the cusp of a potential opportunity for writers. We're getting in really early, you know, buying Amazon at $1 a share or whatever. So I'm curious, we might have to kind of, you know, if you, as I said before, if, if you're using it, then let us know. We might get you on the show to talk to you about it because I think there's some very interesting opportunities. And it's interesting to hear that Rowan's on there as well. And that's a good you know, a good indicator when you've got a you know, million selling author who's now jumping on it as well. So, um, good stuff. and the map as well, the map, <laughs> you know, you've, no, you've made it as an author when you've got a map at the front of your book, don't you really? Yeah. I mean that book, seriously, she did, she did a thing on Instagram where she just said, look at this book and I it stopped me it. in my tracks. And you don't get, it? you know, when a, you know, when a publisher loves you, when they give you a bit of gold foil and a map and, you know, end pages and stuff like that. Yeah. It yeah, looks yeah, very nice. classic, doesn't it, in its appearance? It looks like well, it worked it brilliantly has, on a bookshelf. I think the idea is it sits next to your folio editions of of the Bronte uh, exactly. works, yeah. you know, which is yeah. great. Which is and it is it, they do look lovely together. They do look really nice. So yeah, nice. And pen names, I find it mm. it's it's a kind of an interesting. I guess it's a bit of a maybe pen names are a bit of a luxury when you've sold millions of books, mm. but. Um, I did some research. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, I'm speaking from a little bit of experience, having been called Mark Oliver on our book, Back to Reality, went through a whole discussion around what, what name I was going to use, but it was mainly over pronunciation of my surname. <laughs> but, but I found it really interesting that Rowan has gone down that route because, do you know, it must be one of the hardest things when you're successful to start with a pen name because you're literally starting from scratch again, you know, unless you're going to obviously say it's you out from the gate. It's, yeah, it's a bit of a risk, isn't it? I, th I think the advantage there is she has a built-in readership with Bronte fans. So actually you're probably selling the brand, the Bronte brand 
uh, up front, which gets you into gift shops all over, you know, Yorkshire for a start. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of interest there. And then when, as she said, it's a not so secret because I think you want to know that your author is, you know, has a proven track record and, and she's, you know, obviously got a fantastic track record. People love her books and will read whatever she writes. So you can have that market coming over and having a look anyway. And, I th- you know, she's with Hodo with this one who will go out all guns blazing. So, I yeah, there is always a, an element of risk when you're doing something like that. But uh, I think it's clearly paying off in spades. It's It's been option for TV as well, I believe. So, you know, there's um, this has been a hit, smash hit, yeah. yeah. I wonder as well with using pen names, when, when you jump into that pseudonym, you actually write almost as a different character. Well, I did ask her and she said, you know, she, she puts her Bronte bonnet on. And I think tone, you know, tonally, there there is a difference, definitely a difference, and it is like um, being a, an actor and, and adopting a, a slightly different character, mm. which is interesting. It's um, especially when you're writing for a particular period as well. I'm reading very slowly, sort of. If I wake up five in the morning and there's nothing else, rather than doom scrolling on Twitter, I'm opening um, uh, Charles D- uh, Dickens' um, David Copperfield. I'm reading that very slowly because I've never read that before. I watched the. A per- if you're looking for a feel-good movie, the recent adaptation of Personal History of David Copperfield is absolute joy. So I'm oh, reading the book, but it's um, boy, does Charles Dickens like a comma? Uh, boy, oh boy, <laughs> and a long sentence. But the 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 language is is just wonderful, just mm. just wonderful. Descriptions are just magical, and it's not contemporary at all. You know, the, uh, some of it, some of it's suddenly very very modern, and then some of it's quite archaic, and it's fascinating watching it flip between the two. But yeah, it does start making you wonder if, if you could write in a particular. I mean, the thing is, the Witches of Woodville book, the the Crow Folk, tonally very different to anything I've done before. So, I, I guess I am sort of doing that. I've been doing that myself. So it's maybe, almost like yeah. it's, a, it's a bit like it's a bit like theatre, and I know, I know you're very familiar with that. But it's a bit like being given a slightly different role and they often people get typecast in a certain role of you know playing the villain but there's always there's always variations of that and it for me pen names can sometimes be maybe a way of breaking out of maybe some of the limitations or the challenges mm. you had in fact i was chatting um with uh, an author who's who we've had on the show who has an experiment put out a book under a, a pseudonym and um, has never advertised it's one of those great, great stories where they've never actually advertised that they've done it. And it was more as an experiment to see like what's possible here. You know, is it is it always about good writing? Does good writing carry regardless of the name on a book? And I was told that they did $64,000 in their first year on a set of books. And it brings in an income now of over 10,000, uh, about a thousand bucks a month with no promotion, no Facebook, nothing. Mm-hmm. So mm. I think, um, you know, and because it's different from the, the work they've previously done and they wanted to keep it very separate, it's going back to the, the, the kind of writing. Uh, is, is it the writing that's the most important ultimately and will people keep buying it? Shall I let you into a little secret? I've, um, I've been setting up my website for The Witches of Woodville. And one of the things I've learned from Cueve, Cueve McDonald, who came on the show, his newsletter isn't written by him, really. It's sort of written by his wife because uh, she's essentially he's like he's, uh, he's managing it. And she, uh, you know, and she will you'll get emails from Wonder Wife, which is what he calls her. Love it. Uh, 
And I thought there's something, and when he last came on the program, I want to get him back in soon because he's got a new book coming out, lots of exciting things to talk about. But he was he was talking about how it's easier for her to big him up than himself. And so I've been setting up my web, website for the Witches of Woodville and the Crow Folk and everything. And the newsletter, I'm because the website looks, I've called it you know, the Woodville Village Parish Council website. Because it's, <laughs> it's like a notice board. And, and there's, this, there's this annoying local author called Mark Stay who's got a book coming out. And I've, the newsletter is going to be from the local librarian, uh, a, oh. woman called, a woman called Araminta Cranberry. Who Brilliant. writes and warns people that don't worry, this book doesn't have the kind of sex and violence that have been in his previous disreputable books. <laughs> and so I've been just this afternoon. I've just been doing all the all the stuff with book funnel and everything, where you do the little notes and stuff. And I'm doing a sampler, and I've been in Araminta Cranberry brackets miss close brackets. I've been in her head all afternoon, and it's great. It's just been fun, you know. Play so, and it's I gone from a, a, a silly idea this afternoon to me thinking, Christ, I'm going to be writing this for years. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah you know, exactly. Uh, but <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm having fun with it. So, I, weirdly, I've I've suddenly gone gone into that space. So, yeah, I I'm love kind it. Of doing Any- that. Anything that can kind of get you out of that idea of having to self-promote, I think, mm. is is it's a huge, huge thing. Oh, brilliant. I look forward to seeing how that goes, actually. Lots of fun as well. Fantastic. Might be live by the time this goes live, if I pull my finger out this weekend. What's the website <laughs> for it? Have you got a web address for it? Yes, it's witchesofwoodville.com. There we go. Check it out. Check it out if you want to see what Mr. Stay's been up to in the background. Lots of exciting news coming out there as well. Mm. What else came up for you out of Rowan's interview? Is there anything that stood out for you? This idea of thinking of the reader and thinking of the reader's reaction and giving the reader joy and delight. And I'm so much, I've dropped my pen. I, I think that is... Um, that is so important. It's something that came up on the, one of the crafts uh, questions this week is is uh, just, you know, think of the reaction you want to elicit from a reader when you're when you're writing, when you spring something on them. And this idea, because we were talking about plot twists and how a badly done plot twist, the reader will feel cheated and they will hate you for it. But if you work hard on that plot twist, uh, they love the delight of the surprise of the reveal. It's quite hard to pull off, but if you can do it right, you, you've got them. You've absolutely got them. And that's that's why things like uh, Gone Girl did so well, because the twists in that are so brilliantly done that people can't help but tell everyone else about it. And that's one of the great things about Rowan is, is she knows her readers. And she knows her Rowan readers are different from her Bella readers. And it's a different kind of joy that they're looking for. And it goes back to what we were saying about her being a super fan of Bron- of the Brontes, she knows what the super fans of Bronte want, and yes, she can yes, deliver yes. it. Which is why she is the right person to write this book. Absolutely. So even if, if I had the idea, I might have had the idea. I I wouldn't be able to execute it. She can do it. That's why. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Well, if you like this banter and you enjoy listening uh, to us talk about all of this kind of stuff, then if you want to get some coaching from us pop over to the academy because this is kind of the thing that we go really really deep on and it's it's super super um useful for everyone who's kind of who's pushing and needs to get over that hurdle we should also say a very big thank you to our latest patron support as well if you'd like to support this podcast you can simply pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and get loads of extra goodies including early access to our shows live access to some of our video our live uh, studio recordings of the show as well and um and we have a couple of new patrons this week mark don't we 
We do indeed. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please be upstanding and charge your glasses to Melissa Stone and also to Philippa Siegler. Thank you both. We love you dearly, dearly. And we have some great news on social media, uh, particularly in the BXP group on Facebook. Facebook uh, had a couple of success stories. So Morgan Delaney, uh, he, he he said the other day, well, colour me double chuffed. Uh, he came top <laughs> of the free horror and suspense and horror fiction classic food charts on Amazon. So his book, Sour Milk, A Short, Sharp Horror Shock, top the charts there. So congratulations to you, Morgan. And long-time supporter of this podcast, Sage Gordon-Davis. Now, she did a, a book of poetry uh, last year called Silk Flower Goodbye, which has a review from someone called Mark Stay on the back, which says, not only is it a heartfelt collection of poems, but there's also one about Last Rolos, which makes it the most relatable poetry I've read since Larkin. Uh, <laughs> she has... That's brilliant. She has a new <laughs> collection of poetry out called The Heart whispers so congratulations to you sage on that you know we this podcast just every week there's success stories and it's just absolutely wonderful uh great to hear absolutely well congratulations to everyone please keep sending us your success stories we're getting to that time of year aren't we where dream declarations are becoming very important if you've got a dream declaration that you want to send in to us something that you want to achieve maybe in 2021 um send it to us and we will put it in our diary and make sure that you are held accountable to deliver what you promised mm. to do. There's nothing like getting it out in public to make you get on with it. So um, please send us your dream declarations if you've got them as well. Post them on Twitter. Um, come to the bestsellerexperiment.com website and click on contact and you can send Mark and I a direct message. We do read everyone and we do try and respond to every single message we get as well. Wonderful stuff. Come and find us on social media, folks. We're at Bestseller XP on Twitter and Instagram, and we're on Facebook too. Another thing about uh, being a patron is where you get access to the deep dives. I've just recorded a deep dive with Rhoda Baxter about her new book, Getting Published is Just the Beginning. And it's got all sorts of stuff about contracts and IP, essential listing. You get this stuff if, you, uh, if you're a patron and if you're an academy as well. So do keep an eye out for that coming soon. Brilliant stuff. Mr. Stay, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Indeed. Very much looking forward as we rush towards the end of 2020. Yes, let's get out of this place as soon as possible. (laughs) Where's the exit door? No, I love it. I'm feeling very, very inspired. I I think we're going to have... You know, I, I think we've think turned a corner, Brian, don't you? Don't I think you, we might have turned a corner. Yeah. <laughs> and, I th- and, I, and I thank our good friend Brian Cranston for reminding us that yes. no matter how many troubles you've had in your life, fear not, it can always make a good story in the future. <laughs> now, is, it, is it true he's been living in your spare room for the last four years? He has. And I tell you what, his tighty whities <laughs> honestly... <laughs> The amount of times that I've had to wash those for him. But yeah, I think America will be pleased to have Brian back. And I'll be sad to see him go, actually, because I tell you what, the conversations over dinner, he's an mm. amazing storyteller. And the stuff he's yeah. told me about Breaking Bad. Uh, anyway. And he's good, but, he's, good, he's good with the washing up as well, I hear. You well, know, he's good he, with he no, he's the dishwasher. He did tell us, do you remember? He said that dishwasher, that's the thing. He knows how to he knows how to stack a good dishwasher. That's his major. So any yeah, brilliant. Be sad to see you go, Brian. But you know it's mm. been a nice four years, 
Yeah. And uh, you're welcome back anytime, <laughs> but hopefully not too soon. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> have a great week, everyone. Have a fantastic writing week. We'll be back in two weeks with a live show and a rerun next week. Don't forget to jump in on the Academy. Academy bestsellerexperiment.com do it you know you want it you know you have do to do it. it for your future we want to see you become the next generation of bestsellers take care Mr. Stay and we'll speak soon it's a goodbye from Mark 1 and a goodbye from Mark 2 goodbye goodbye <laughs>